We are going to be over in 1 Samuel 18. We are going to look at how people of honor can become people of dishonor. How do they pick up that spirit of dishonor? We're looking at how people of honor become people of dishonor. We're not looking at how people of dishonor stayed people of dishonor. But people who have gone the way of honor, we've also seen go the way of dishonor. And so we're looking specifically at that. There is a process, and if you know the process, you can recognize it, you can stop yourself if you find that you're on it. Now, people can always go back. If they get on the path of dishonor, you can always go back to the path of honor. But the further down the road that you go of dishonor, the less you'll want to leave it. There are people that have gone the way of dishonor who were following honor and came back. David, we saw, was one that he walked in the way of dishonor for uh, part of a year. And then God had to send his prophet. And his prophet helped him. But you will see that those people who come out of dishonor and go back into honor, it always starts with repentance. The prodigal son had gone in the way of honor, went in the path of dishonor, and then repented. And then came back. You can come back. People you may know who are going the way of dishonor, who had been honorable people, had been people of a spirit of honor. They can come back. But it seems the longer they stay on it, the less likely they are to come back. But let's take a look at what happens here. Last week we looked at David and Goliath. Now Goliath was not a man of honor who became a man of dishonor. He just was a person of dishonor. And David came up against him and capitalized on on that. And he became very uh, well known in the kingdom. He became much better off than he was before. Good to see those opportunities and be able to take advantage of them. But in Romans chapter 12, verse 16, put this verse on your bulletin this morning. I'm going to read it to you as well as the New King James and the New Living Translation, the New Century Version, and then the Williams. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Now the New Living puts it this way. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. And don't think you know it all. The New Century Version puts it this way. Live in peace with with each other. Do not be proud, but make friends with those who seem unimportant. Do not think how smart you are. And the Williams Translation reads it this way. Keep on thinking in harmony with one another. Stop being high-minded but keep on associating with lowly people. Stop being conceited. Now, people of honor can be lowly people. They can be high people. It it makes no difference where your status is in society. It makes no difference how much money that you have. People of honor can be people of honor no matter what their means are. Sometimes we get an idea that in order to be people of honor, especially in, in, in churches and such, uh, in order to be people of honor, you have to come dressed to church in a suit. That's how you honor God. Or you have to come to the church in a, in a dress or something along those lines. And we get the idea that uh, the only way that you can honor God is to do such things. And that may not be true for you. It's uh, don't try and impose that on other people. Understand, in the New Testament, they did not have suits and ties. And they came to church and honored God. I guess they had dresses. (laughs) I don't think they're new. But suits and ties are are not new. Now, I wear a suit and tie every time I I show up here at church. That's me. I would feel out of place if I did not. I would feel myself that I am dishonoring something because I have the capacity to wear a suit and tie to church. And in our society, it's a very societal thing, that's one of the ways that we show honor. It does not mean that anyone else who doesn't have a suit or doesn't feel like wearing them um, doesn't like wearing them, uh, needs to go out there and buy one so that you can come on in the church and have a suit on. I like how Brother Keith put it. He said, if all you have in your closet is jeans and a t-shirt, then wear your best pair of jeans to church. Wear your best t-shirt to, jer- to church. Honor God with the best that you got. That's fine. That's good. You show up. Don't ever, don't you ever make anybody feel bad because they wore their best jeans. 
Now, you may hear me talk every once in a while. I never mention any names, but I do get a little annoyed at ministers when I see them on, on TV or on YouTube or things like that. And they're not just dressed down, they're dressed sloppy. I don't think you need to ever dress sloppy for God. I think you ought to at least be neat. You can be neat in a pair of jeans and a t-shirt. And you can be sloppy in a pair of jeans and a t-shirt. Just don't be sloppy for God. But, uh, but you do the best that you can. That's all you need to do. If you don't ever want suits, I didn't used to like suits. My mom will tell you. My dad would too if he was here. But they said, you know, when I was a kid growing up in church, they couldn't get me in a tie. I'm a typical boy. I didn't, I didn't wear ties. I didn't wear ties throughout high school. I don't, I may have owned one for special occasions. If I did, I don't remember it. But, um, I, I didn't wear all that sort of stuff. And they never could get me to enjoy wearing, uh, ties and so forth. They, they, uh, were taking me to the airport one day. And I was at the airport. They were dropping me off for, for school. It, it wasn't the King's College. King's College is where I went first. But then I went down to Rama. And they were dropping me off at the airport because to get to Rama, you had to fly. It was further. And so they were dropping me off, and I showed up at the airport with a suit. And uh, I didn't think anything of it. And so I was in this in their suit, and they said goodbye to me. They told me later on, they said somebody in the airport came up to me and said, how do you get your son to wear suits? <laughs> and they just said, we don't know. We sent him to the school, and he came back wearing suits. <laughs> and, then they, and then they couldn't get me out of them. But I feel good wearing, wearing suits. Now, I'm, it's, it's hot in the summer. It's hot. You may every once in a while, you'll see me in the summer. I'll take this coat off and throw it on the, the chair here and, and keep on going. But um, don't feel like you have to, to line up with that. We have some churches that have adopted this thing that um, ministers, people in church wearing suits drives people away. And so they're up there, you know, wearing jeans and a T-shirt and some of them, you know, unbuttoned T-shirt and they have this new kind of T-shirt, the untucked ones. I own no untucked shirts. I do not plan to buy any untucked shirts. And if anyone says, oh, I'm going to bless Pastor Steve with an untucked shirt, it will stay in my closet. <laughs> I won't even wear it out in the shop. When I'm in the shop, my shirt is tucked in. I just, that's just what I, I do. Uh, of course, it's easier to get to the tools on my belt when it's tucked in. But I just generally, that's what I like to, I like to do. I don't know. If you'd like an untucked shirt, glory to God. Have it. You enjoy it. Go out there and wear it. I don't, it does not bother me if people show up. I just don't like them myself. I've had people, you know, they have, they have different things in other countries. They wear in other countries and they honor, uh, they are honoring people by wearing certain things and they try and get me. You, do you want one of these? We'll bring one back for you. No. I don't. I don't need to dress like you are in your country. I, I, I don't do that. I don't need to do that. Uh, if you want to come here dressed as you honor people in your, fine. I got no problems with it. Come on. Bring it. But don't make me dress like you. And I'm not going to make you dress like me. Because that's not honoring God. You do the best that you can do. The best that you can do for God. That's all that anybody's going to ask you. And I'll never care if the best you ever do is a, is a t-shirt and jeans. It's never going to bother me. Just be in an attitude of honor to God. You see, if we don't start bringing God our best, our attitude towards God becomes less than that. So don't ever think that you're, that, uh, people will look on you. Now, I know that if I ever showed up here and didn't have a, have a, uh, tie on, at least a tie, that you all be saying, what in the world is wrong? I understand that. <laughs> it's been that way for decades. That's just the way that I, I, I go with it. I, and, but I, I don't ever, I don't want to impose that on other people. Don't you feel like you have to do that or that there's some kind of a secret honoring God to that. There's much more in honoring God to the things He told us to do, which is lift up your hands and worship. Sing and worship unto God. Let your mouth be filled with His praises. Always be grateful and thankful. These are ways that we honor God on a regular basis. Don't just look at the dress. Don't just look at the things that we wear. These are not the ways that we honor God, though it's a way that we can honor God. So just uh, just keep that in mind. But Keep on thinking in harmony with one another. You see, when I start getting out of harmony with other, with other people, when I start thinking of myself as being so good and everyone else not being quite as up to par as where I'm at, this is where disharmony begins to come in. And once we start moving into, the, into that area, we can, um, we can fall into a place of dishonor. It doesn't mean you have to get along with everybody. Jesus did not get along with everybody. 
when he found people that had a wrong attitude, were imposing things on other people, they didn't see a very kind, very nice Jesus. They saw a very stern Jesus. Uh, don't feel like you have to get along with everybody. But he says here, Be the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Who you associate with will change your life. You associate with proud people, you're going to be going in the direction of proud and dishonor. You associate with humble people, you'll go in a direction that that is uh, more honoring to God. And these are the things we want to do. But let's get into our verse of Scripture here. We were looking at David last week. I want to continue this because David is one of the best people we can look at as far as honor is concerned. Because in the life of David, we see the good and the bad. We know a lot of things he did was good, and we know a lot of things that he did that was bad. But God says of David that he's a man after my own heart. And we got to make sure that we that we do that. So the more I can study from someone who is a person of honor, then the more honor I can become capable of. You are you may be walking right now in the greatest amount of honor that you can offer to God. But that, you just don't know anymore. That's a, that's the best that you know. If uh, you know, it was a couple Sundays ago. Uh, some of you folks were in here, and and Lumi took a walk across the front. And I saw people go, ah, she's walking, you know. And she, she kind of walks like Frankenstein. That's what people have been calling her. You know, she's very un, un, unstable, just kind of clogs a, along there. And, uh, and you look at that and you say, oh, but everybody's, everybody's thrilled. Oh, look at her, she's walking. Oh, look at her, she's, look at what she's doing. Everybody is thrilled, we're all happy. Oh, come on, walk over here. And we're all getting excited about that. Now, if I came in and walked like that, you'd say, what is wrong? You walk in the honor the best you can for what you know. But the more that we grow and the more that we know, the more honor I can walk in. I can walk at a... Some, sometimes we can get to a place in our, our Christian walk where we can walk at a level of honor that is higher than we knew last year, five years ago, ten years ago. But that doesn't mean that I need to judge everybody else by what I'm walking. Because it took me a while to get to the place where I'm at, wherever that might be, and to... Uh, to be able to walk in some more after that. Sometimes I look at the Word of God and I just tell, tell God, says, God, there just seems to be so much of your Word I don't understand yet. There just seems to be such a huge amount of your Word that I still need to learn. And um, you know, the, the more we learn, the more we find out, I don't know. The more that we honor God, the more we walk in honor, the more we can find out, boy, there's more honor I can walk in. And if I can walk in a greater amount of honor a year from now than I'm walking in, in right now. How much better is that for me? And that's where we want to get to. That's what we want to learn about here in this series. In verse 1 of chapter 18 in First Samuel, Now when he had finished speaking to Saul, and that was David, the Saul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Saul took him that day and would not let him go home to his father's house anymore because until now he was going back and forth, coming back, playing a harp for Saul sometimes and then sometimes going back and taking care of the sheep and then coming back, helping uh, Saul out. But Saul didn't really know him all that well. He just knew he somebody played the instrument and it helped him out. But uh, now he knows him. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. Now, obviously, Jonathan is the son of Saul. His formative years are spent under Saul when he walked in honor. And he becomes an honorable person. Jonathan becomes an extremely honorable person. His is one of the lives that I am so disappointed we didn't get to see when he grew older. I so much wanted to see what would Jonathan have become because he was such a man of honor. I think, and at times I look at this story, this, this story here in Samuel, and I think David seems like he was even more of a man of honor than David was. And Jonathan, if he had become king, may not have had the, the, the sins that David allowed into his life. Maybe he would have. You just never know until you get into those situations what you would do. But boy, Jonathan was just, he was something else. As his father changed, though, Jonathan rejects those changes 
and he stays honorable. So his father was honorable. Jonathan grew up under that. As his father moved out from being honorable, Jonathan says, no, I'm not going to walk that way. I'm going to stay the way that I'm going. And David is drawn to the honor of Jonathan and the two form a bond. Honorable people get drawn to each other just like dishonorable people get drawn to each other. And Saul and Jonathan are just drawn to each other and they enter into this covenant. If you walk in honor, you will draw and be drawn to honorable people. This is something that you will see. Now, even honorable people will still do dishonorable things, but they'll desire to change those. When they, when I move into dishonor, you know what? No, that's not good. I need to change that. And they will desire that change and they will bring that change about. Now, a bond can be formed with people of honor because the, 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 they connect. I think I missed the letter there, but a bond can be formed with people of honor because they connect on an unselfish basis something others are not capable of. So the bond between honorable people is greater than the bond between dishonorable people because they connect on an unselfish level. So Saul took David and he put him into full-time service. David doesn't go home anymore. And this is probably something that David wants as much as Saul does. Saul wants him there because he's, he can be helpful for him. And David probably wants to be there because I can get out of that house environment. Out where my brothers are always picking on me. My father doesn't believe me. Uh, he allows these kind of things to go on. I, he probably just wanted to get out of there. Now David and Jonathan, they form a, a covenant. And you might wonder, why in the world have one? When we look at this, we we it's, it's hard not to look at this and say, who is the beneficiary of this covenant? Is it David or is it Jonathan? I think it's pretty clear the one who benefits from the covenant the most is David. Because David comes with nothing. Except he just got a you know, pretty good windfall defeating Goliath. But Jonathan, he's the king's son. He's got everything. And he gives it all to David. Now, people of honor do not do this. Do this. Uh, they'll, they'll move into this kind of a covenant, not caring what they gain. People of honor will enter into a covenant like this, not caring what they gain, but seeing the strength that comes from two people who form a bond, and by joining forces, they become more powerful than they would be singly. The power, though, of the bond comes in the honor that they walk in, and because they are unselfish. In this people of dishonor, they will do this. They will enter into a covenant. They will enter into a bond for what they can gain. It's very selfish. The weakness of this bond is the selfishness that they walk in. And as long as they they themselves benefit from this covenant, they continue in it. They will break it the moment that they don't. See, that's the difference between a covenant of honor and a covenant of dishonor. If the covenant is no longer working for me, we break it. But these, we're not talking a contract. We're talking a covenant. And in a covenant, it is a lifelong thing. You don't enter into them lightly. When you enter into a covenant, it's a lifelong thing. And even though the benefit is no longer there that you thought maybe would be there, you still stay with it. God enters in with us with a covenant. That is a lifelong thing. We can look at it and say, well, we're certainly more the beneficiary than God is. But apparently, God sees something in it that he benefits from. Now, when you look at the overall picture, most of you know the story of David, Jonathan, and some of the things that went on down here. David may be the one who benefits from this more so than Jonathan. But in the end, Jonathan will benefit more than David. Because in the end, David makes sure that Jonathan's line is preserved. And he takes care of those that were offspring of his. And if you remember the story of Mephibosheth and some of the things that were going on there, you'll see that Jonathan became a great uh, beneficiary of this. Even though David could no longer benefit from the covenant, he still made sure that he held up and did what he was going to do. Verse 5. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and behaved wisely. And Saul sent him over the men of war, and he was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Now, what's it mean that wherever Saul sent him, that he behaved wisely. 
He said over the men of war. So he's going out to battle. He's going out to war. So a man, David, who was not old enough to be in the army, was considered to be a kid with a stick by Goliath, is now over people in the army. How do you think that went over? You're in the army. I mean, maybe you've been in the army for 10 years. Here's this newcomer kid. And he's now over you. And somehow, because of the way David operated, he won them over. Don't think that if you're in a situation and people don't respect you, that you're just stuck that way. David was in a very tough position. And he came out on top of this. And he was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Now what had happened as they were coming home when David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistine that the woman had come out of all the cities Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, with musical instruments. So the women sang as they danced and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens thousands. Then Saul was very angry and the saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousand and to me they have only ascribed thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? Now people of honor... I wrote this in your outline. I wanted to make sure that you got this. People of honor love the success of others even if they do not benefit from it. People of honor love the success of others even if they do not benefit from it. Have you ever watched a movie? Have you ever watched a movie of a, of, of a real situation? Not just you know one that they wrote the script and they made everything up, but one that was about a real situation. Something that truly happened. And they, you watch the movie and you get in, ingrained in the movie and the person in the movie, they have great success. How many of you have felt the joy of that great success and you were glad for that success that they had and came back out of there feeling really good about the person on the other side, even though you, you gained no benefit from them and their success, but you were thrilled that they were successful. Oh, and it just gave you a, a joyful feeling on the inside. You see, that's the honor in you. People of dishonor would look at that and say, oh, I don't care. What's that matter to me? And you look at that and say, how can you not be moved by this situation and things that are going on? Because they're not people of honor. But people of honor, people who are pursuing honor, you feel that honor in, in you and it bonds to the person on the screen who's also a person of honor. Pursuing honor. And you, you have a bond there. And you're, you're pulled along. I love those kind of movies where people act, acted out with honor. You know, some of those movies that, that come to, come to mind. There was one that uh, we've talked to people about, and I always get the name of the movie wrong, but I think it was called Head of the Class. It was a movie about a teacher who had autism. Or not autism, he had, uh, uh, what's that tick that they have? Uh, Tourette's. And, and he had Tourette's syndrome before they knew what Tourette's syndrome was. And he faced a lot of opposition in school and a lot of opposition even from his parents. Uh, his mom was on his side, but his dad was not. And he became one of the greatest teachers in his, in his area, honored and respected. But um, he had an uphill battle. And he was even hard just to get a job as a teacher because of the handicap that he had. But if you never watched that movie, I love watching that movie. We've seen it a couple of times and it just get drawn into it. It says, oh, he made it. He was successful. That was great. How many have ever seen the movie Red Tails? Anybody, anybody not seen the movie Red Tails? Has no idea what that is. History movie. There was a group of, uh, air, uh, uh, people in the, um, Air Force. And they were escorts. They would escort the bombers because back in the, in the days of World War One, World, well, actually World War Two, they would have, uh, bomber runs and they would need the, uh, fighters to go along and to protect them. And to make sure that the fighters that would come along and try and shoot the bombers down didn't get through. And so you would have a fighter squadron and you have a bomber squadron. Then you would have an, a, a fighter squadron assigned to the bombers. Well, what was happening a lot of times in the, in the war was the pilots who were the aviators for the fighters loved to be able to put notches on their planes for how many planes they killed, how many planes they shot down. And so when they were involved in the battle, 
they went more after the personal glory. And so they went out to try and shoot down as many of the enemy ones as they could and left protecting the bombers. And so many of the bombers were shot down. They weren't successful in their missions. They couldn't go on the bombing runs and succeed in doing what they were supposed to do because they were shot down. They don't have the same defenses. They don't have the same maneuverability that the fighters did. And so some of the fighters would be able to get uh, pulled in. They would actually just have a tactic. They knew this about them. And they would have one fighter squad show up to try and pull the fighters away from the bombers and another fighter squad to come on in and just start shooting them down. And the, the people that were doing the bombing runs were losing bombers, we're losing the pilots for them. We're losing people on them. We're not getting the success that's going on. And so they had uh, created this this uh, group, and they named themselves the Red Tails. And they painted the tails of their plane uh, red. And uh, uh, what's the name of that uh, school? Uh, Tuskegee. They were uh, part of the Tuskegee Airway. And they were um, Tuskegee Airmen. And they were... Uh, it's just a phenomenal story because what it was was these guys... Instead of going after the glory, they went after protecting the bombers. Now, there was a racial component to it as well. Most of the bombers were piloted by white pilots. Most of the fighters were piloted by white fighters, uh, white pilots as well. But this particular group was not uh, made up of white pilots. They were made up of African-American black pilots. And so they would go on out and they had a camaraderie among themselves, but they were given an assignment and their assignment was protect the bombers. And for the first time, the bombers actually had people who took the assignment and stayed to protect them instead of going out to try and get notches to be able to put some numbers on their plane. And they were so thrilled that though they first got some racial slurs and some racial comments, after a while the bombers began to realize if you got assigned these guys, you were protected and you had a much better chance of coming back. And they were thrilled to have them. Oh, it was a wonderful story, but you felt the honor that was there that the, the men of Tuskegee had, the, the honor that they lived up to. We're not here to get self-glory. We're here to get the, we're here to do something. I, I love movies that are like this. I could go on about other movies that have done the same kind of thing, but uh, y- you get drawn to movies of honor. Because in us, when we are born again, that honor of God is put down inside of us and we are drawn to honor. Satan wants to get us drawn to dishonor. He wants to get us to be pulled out of operating in an honorable way. Having honorable thoughts, having honorable words, and having honorable actions. If he can do that, then he is, he'll successfully put us on the road of dishonor. And the longer we stay on that road, the more likely it is we will not come off of it. Now, David has great success because he behaves wisely. People see that he behaves wisely. They probably see that most uh, generals, most captains, most commanders, when we go out in these situations, they do these particular things. And some of them might have been thinking, well, that's not real smart to do that. And David would say, let's do it this way. Oh, man, that might work. And so they're going out there and they're successful. Probably more of them are coming home. And, and not dying in battle. And that can win you over to a person. But people of honor love the success of others, even if they do not benefit from it. So whenever you're watching one of those movies and you feel real good about the people that's in there, just know that's the honor in you. That's the honor in you rising up. That's a good thing. People of dishonor, though, are envious of other people's success and see it as a threat. Even when it brings benefits to themselves. Even when I benefit from something that someone else did, when they did it and I didn't do it, if I'm a person of dishonor, I feel envious about that. Have you ever had that kind of attitude at work? People feel envious. People feel like, why are you having that success? Even though you're bringing success to the company, even though you are doing good things and helping the company, people become envious because... You're doing something that they're not doing. You're able to do something that they weren't able to accomplish. Well, people of dishonor will go on. They begin to say some things. The accuser comes around, whispers in, in people's ears. This is what we're seeing here with Saul. Saul had the enemy whisper in his ears. It's not the first time that Saul had the enemy whisper in his ear. He's had this before. He had the enemy whisper in his ear when he was told, wait seven days by Samuel. And so, oh, I'll get up there and we'll, we'll take care of this. 
we'll do the sacrifice. He waited almost seven days. We got nervous because the people were leaving. And so he decided to offer the sacrifice himself. And then once he did that, Samuel showed up and God rejected him. There were other situations that he followed a similar path. But the women are singing, they're dancing. Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul's not going to glory in the fact that they're seeing one man slaying a thousand and some of the people that I have under me are doing fantastic too and we're in, in success mode. No, nope. they should have ascribed to me 10,000. Now this brings pressure and pressure's purpose is to change a belief or create a new one. When you undergo pressure in your life, the purpose of that pressure from the enemy standpoint is to either change your current beliefs or create a new one. That's what pressure is there to do. If you didn't believe that God was behind sickness and disease, that pressure comes on you that you would believe that God is behind the sickness and disease. We've got to take something that you're believing. We've got to change it. Or we've got to bring something in that is new. Remember Adam and Eve in the garden? The pressure came. Pressure is on them. God says that the day that you eat of that tree, you'll know both good and evil. You'll be like God, knowing both good and evil. Pressure is on. He's trying to create another new belief. That's why pressure comes. You see, without the pressure, we don't have any reason to change anything. But when that pressure comes upon us, it's trying to get us to change our belief. It's trying to get us to change our belief in a certain person in our life or certain people in our life or certain things about our job. That pressure comes on you to change you. Just because you get out of the pressure doesn't mean that you fixed anything. If you have a... How many have ever had a leaky pipe? Not a leaky faucet, but a leaky pipe in your house. Anybody ever had a leaky pipe in your house? Anybody never had a leaky pipe in their house? Oh, man. Glory to God for that. Leaky pipes are tough. If you have a leaky pipe, once that pipe starts to leak, that pipe will leak. And so what, what you could do is turn the water off. If you turn the water off, will the water leak anymore? It will not. Nope, but you also don't have any water. But if you turn the water back on again, what's going to happen? Pressure reveals cracks. Pressure reveals leaks. Under pressure is where you see where the problems are. And then you can fix it. Then you can do something to, uh, to, to correct that. Once that pressure is there. Because you've got to fix that pressure. You've got to fix the place where the pressure is exposing the problem. You've got to get in there and, and do that. Either you've got to call a plumber, which is expensive. It costs uh, cost a lot of money to, to bring in plumbers. I fortunately had somebody who, who could walk me through some of the basics on plumbing. And so I was able to learn how to sweat something in. And, um, and to, to be able to get that done. So I could, if we have a leak, I can cut out the offending part and... Uh, sweat in a new a new fitting and uh, tighten it all up and and then it's good to go i don't like doing it but i don't like paying a plumber the amount of money that they uh they want to pay we when we were way back when i don't know it was almost 20 years ago we moved into the house we're in now and we moved in my wife said you know i'll move into this house i'll accept this house but we had to change the kitchen that was the that was the deal we had to change the kitchen so we had to, to blow out the back wall and create a new room and expand the kitchen out into it. That was just one of the things to, to buy this house. So, and we've been looking for a while to find the one that would be satisfactory. And so that's what we decided to do. So we were doing this and we were changing the whole kitchen around, which also meant moving the sink. We moved the sink basically from here to here. And so we had a plumber come on in and he gave us a price for moving it from here to here. And that price on changing that plumbing was $600. This was 20 years ago. It's probably higher now. But I was 20. Now, I, I calculate how long does it take me to earn $600? And, you know, I count that in days. How many days does it take me to earn $600? And the plumber counts it in hours. <laughs> it don't take him too many hours to move the sink from here to here. Now, it's going to take me a lot more hours than it's going to take him 
to move the sink from here to here. But I calculated how many hours it would probably take me and compared that against hiring him and decided I can do this. And so I moved the sink and that moved all the plumbing around and it took me well over a half a day to get all the pipes and everything moved out, you know, to get them cut out of where they were at and put them in the, the places where they needed to be. And uh, But we got it done. And at the end, I said, save $600. <laughs> That's good. But um, I know how to, how to fix some of those. That's just a, one of the places that you see the pressure the most. When pressure comes on your life, it will expose some cracks. It will expose them. It didn't make them. Very often, it doesn't make them. It just exposes them. When that pressure comes on your life, and it exposes a, a, a weakness, count it all joy, as James says. Count it all joy. Glory to God, now I know where a weakness is. I didn't know that weakness was there, but now I know that weakness is there, and I can get in there. We can fix it. We can get that taken care of. So pressure reveals problems. Just because you got away from the pressure doesn't mean that problem went away. Now look at the progression of the thoughts of Saul. Then Saul was very angry and the saying displeased him and he said, they have ascribed to David 10,000 and to me they have ascribed only thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? So we went from a place where it was a joyous victory, great victory over the Philistines and we're looking at thousands of Philistines having been slain. These are enemies. These are people who want to afflict them and cause them harm. They came back from a great victory. They won. They probably brought even uh, stuff back, loot back and uh, they were probably richer when they came back than when they went. And just because of this song, first off, he got angry. Then he got envious. Well, he's got 10,000. I've only got 1,000. And then he began to be suspicious of them. Now, what more can he have but the kingdom? In verse 9, So Saul eyed David from that day forward. He eyed David. He's keeping his eyes on him. Now, sometimes we do the same thing with our eyes. Your eyes will tell you a whole lot about what's going on inside. You probably have seen this with people. You probably have, have had people look at you with suspicion. Have you ever had people who looked at you with suspicion? You can just say, boy, the way they look at me. They don't look at me the same way they used to. They, they're looking at me like I did something wrong. They're looking on you with suspicion. That's one of the things that we'll do with our eyes. We look on people with suspicion. Hmm. We haven't even done anything, but we're looking at them and just kind of watching them. Watching you. Seeing the things that you're doing. What's what's going on? Now sometimes suspicion is, is justified. Sometimes the suspicion is called for. Uh, I don't, I, when I deliver a bunk bed, sometimes uh, I'm, I'm still old-fashioned and the, the, the old way still works for me. I either deliver a bunk bed to a girl's room or I deliver it to a boy's room. That's it. That's news for some people, probably not for you. We don't, we don't deal with any of those other things. Either either our girl girl lives there or our boy lives there usually. You don't usually have um, these uh, he, she's or whatever it is that they, 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 they go by anymore. <laughs> I don't know what they're trying to do with that. But anyway, I have a rule whenever I deliver a bunk bed because I deliver usually some of the, the stain leftover stain and we, we drop it off for the people so that they can touch up the bed and we tape some things to the top of the can so that they uh, are able to do some things afterwards and uh, I always tell them uh, if it's a girl's room I don't mind leaving the stain can in the room I don't mind it's okay we can, we can just but if it's a boy's room I do not I will carry the stain out of, because it's always in the room with me in case I have to touch something up. I will carry it out, hand it to mom or dad and say, here, I don't leave these in the little boy's room. And I just so I don't think, well, you're, why you're suspicious of my little boy. I, I have a real good reason for it. I hand it to him. I always say this. I don't leave these in the little boy's room because I was a little boy once. <laughs> I know what we'll do. That stain can will be opened and things will have... It's called stain for a reason. <laughs> if it gets on something, it's not coming off. 
That's that stuff is staying on. Now little girls could care less. They're just not wired the same way. They just they just don't care about it. It's the same thing with ceiling fans. We go into a room with a ceiling fan. You know, mom and dad they always tell me, well, we're concerned about the ceiling fan in the room. And I said, well, okay, when I get there, I'll let you know what I know about it. And if you go into a little girl's room and the ceiling fan is out there, you know, little girls don't care about the ceiling fan. They're not wired that way. They see the ceiling fan and no big deal. It's there. And, you know, as long as it's not coming over this, the bed and able to hit them if they got up, I'm not too concerned about it. But they sometimes get concerned. Well, you know, we don't want them to, you know, to, to get out there and to, to, to reach for it. It says, well, it's this way. If, it, you know, the girls, they don't care about the ceiling fan. That ceiling fan's there. It's on. It's, all, it's off. They don't really care. But little boys, no matter what you do, that little boy is going to touch the ceiling fan. He is going to do it. I don't care how far away that ceiling fan is from the bed. I don't care how close it is to the bed. The little boy is going to touch the ceiling fan. Often. <laughs> We're going to... I wonder if this will hurt. We think that way. I wonder if this will hurt. Little girl, we don't care. Probably would hurt. I'm not going to bother messing with it. Little boy, ah, uh, I wonder if it will hurt. Oh, it did. I wonder if it will hurt again. <laughs> I don't know why we're wired that way, but I know that we are. <laughs> and so I always tell them, we go in there and says, look, if you're trying to get that little boy not to touch that, that is not happening. That little boy is going to touch that ceiling fan no matter if it's halfway across the room. So, you know, we're just, <laughs> we're just wired differently that way. But you may look on them with suspicion. You know, there's some situations you look on a little boy with suspicion for because you know they're up to something. Some situations, the little girls are, there's, you look at them suspicious on because you know they're up to something. Little girls are not innocent, innocent. They're just guilty of different things than boys are. That's the only difference. They just do different stuff that, than we do. You know, little boys, they go out there and they have a fight and then they're back playing together by the afternoon. Little girls hold a grudge. Little boys, they just duke it out. And we're over. We got it done. Little girls, not so much. They are, they, we are wired differently. So sometimes you have to look on things with suspicion. But other times it's just because of envy. In this situation with Saul, he is just, hmm. I can't see the good that has come because I'm looking on this with suspicion. Here's the other one. Here's the other thing that we do. Because you can tell a whole lot with your eyes. We roll our eyes. How many of you have rolled your eyes? You heard something? Oh. Man. Why do we roll our eyes? Because we are trying to communicate something. I see this going on. You're not getting away with this. I see this going on. This is not right. I'm not going to say anything, but oh, here we go. I need to communicate that I am not in agreement with this. Quit rolling your eyes. That is a path of dishonor. You do not need to do it. Now try and stop. You'll, you will find there's a tug. It seems like we always have to let people know, I am not on board with this. We roll our eyes. When we roll on your eyes. We look on people with suspicion, we roll our eyes, or we have angry eyes for good things. A good thing happened, like Saul here, good thing happened, and he's angry. He's mad, but this, this is a good thing. But I wasn't the one who did it. It didn't come through me. Don't, um, don't be going in that way. Now, when you look at this situation with, with David and with Saul, I hear Christians, they do these things all the time. Christians, especially spiritual, super spiritual. How many have ever met a super spiritual Christian? You know, these are the people that pray in the grocery store about whether to buy the Oreos or the chocolate chips. You know, that's what they do. God, should I buy the red car or the green car? I'm really perplexed. This is a life-altering decision, whether I should buy the red one or the green one. Um, there's a whole lot of people, spiritual people, who've gotten so caught up in things, they forgot about plans. They measure a person's spirituality by the things that person comes to know. Well, you ought to know this about me. Well, you ought to know that about me. Well, you should have known this. 
Why didn't God tell you this? And all these kind of things. I've heard it over the years. Always hear this from people. That they're expecting that God would just tell you about things. God is... Spiritual people, real spiritual people, are not as concerned with things as they are with plans. God doesn't talk about things as much as he talks about plans. He wants to make his plans known to you. People that are spiritual, people that get to know God, know his plans. God knows the plans that he has for us. He knows the plans that are ahead. When Samuel was told by the people, we want to have a king, he told them in the plan of God, this is not the way that it should be. He doesn't tell them the things. He tells them the plan. If you go in the way of a king, these are the things that will happen. That's okay. We want those things to happen. All right. But eventually they they didn't like those uh, problems that came about because of the plans that they pursued. You'll see this even in this country. A lot of times we look at candidates because of the things that they promise. Because of the things that they do. The things that they don't do. And we have either a positive or a negative response to them because of things. We don't get into plans. What are the plans? And, uh, and that's why we see a lot of things are going on in the world today is because people weren't tied into plans. You ought to be able to spot, as a spiritual person, you ought to be able to spot the plans of God. God is behind this plan. God is behind the plan of David being king. Was David a perfect king? No, he wasn't even a perfect father. He had a lot of problems in that, that front. But God said in the plan of things, this is going to work. This is going to go, going to, it's going to go well. The things didn't always work out. But the plans did. I bet you there are some people during David's reign said when he got involved with Bathsheba, you see that thing? That'll prove to you that God wasn't behind this. We should have stayed with the house of Saul. But the plan of God was not that way. See, spiritual people can see the plan of God despite the things. Unspiritual people who try to pass themselves off as spiritual can't see the plan of God because of the things. Be a spiritual person. Understand the plans of God. God is going to bring about His plans through imperfect people, which means some of the things that these imperfect people will do are not of God. But the overall plan is God. Does that make sense to you? David was in the plan of God. When David, when God moved on from Saul being king, he made a plan for David to be king and he had plans for certain things to go. We're going to, we are planning on you kicking these Philistines out, overcoming these Philistines. We have plans for you to defeat the giants and get them gone. We have plans for you. And then David came up with his own plan. He says, I'm going to build a temple. And God says, all right, that's not in the plans that I have, but I'll put it in the plans for your son. And so God is into plans more than things. I'm not saying that God doesn't see things, but he's more into plans. Be like God. Be more into plans than into things. Verse 10, And it happened on the next day that the distressing spirit from God came upon Saul and he prophesied inside the house. So David played music with his hand as at other times, but there was a spear in Saul's hand and Saul cast the spear for he said, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped his presence twice. Now Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him but had departed from Saul. Therefore Saul removed him from his presence and made him captain over a thousand and he went out and came in before the people. Now don't get sidetracked by the fact that Paul was prophesying. Just because a person prophesies doesn't mean the spirit of God is behind it. What was behind it was the distressing spirit. Just because somebody says it's prophecy doesn't mean that it is. If the anointing of David on the instrument could calm the spirit down so that he would stop prophesying, that would tell me that whatever is being prophesied is not of God. And Satan can inspire prophecies as much as God can. So Saul cast a spear at David with the intent, it would seem, to kill him. That's a, that's a big buildup. That has gone on in one day. He has decided to, to move in this way. Verse 14, And David behaved wisely in all his ways, and the Lord was with him. Therefore, when Saul saw that he behaved very wisely, he was afraid of him. 
But all Israel and Judah loved David because he went out and came in before them. So David's in there with the people. They see him go out. They see him come in. They see that uh, there are probably some talk like this. My son is under the command of David. Who's your son under the command of? My son's under the command of so-and-so. And every time that someone is under the command of David, they're coming back. And sometimes under the command of so-and-so, not as many people were coming back. They were, they were dying. Because your commander in an army can very much influence how many people come back. When we had the Civil War that went on, we were, uh, we were trying to find a general for the North Army that was competent, that was able to do some things. We found a lot that were not competent and really couldn't go into battle all that well. But uh, they were finally able to find some who were able to do, uh, at least bring about some, some kind of victories in the thing. And um, uh, when they they finally got one who brought brought the war to an end, he had a nickname. He was called the Butcher because most of the people under his command died. In fact, the men would start sewing their name on their uniform so that when their bodies were found, they would know who it was. That was for the North. Now, General Lee had a much more respect for the for the people that were under him. And under his command, not as many people, at least initially, not as many people died. But um, it didn't work out quite so well for the North. The North lost a lot of persons in the, in the battle, in the war, because we just didn't have adequate generals to be able to do that. General makes a big difference on who, who survives and who doesn't. If David was one of the ones who was captain, the people that were under him were probably coming back a lot more. If you look later on in life, David has 600 men that are under him. And he always has 600 men. It doesn't seem like he loses anybody. It's an amazing, amazing thing. But if you, if um, a mom's son is under the command of David and he keeps coming back alive, that mom is going to have some great respect for David because he keeps bringing him back alive. Verse, um, verse 17. Then Saul said to David, Here is my older daughter Merab. I will give her to you as wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. Remember, he won the daughter because of he, he killed Goliath. For Saul thought, let my, let my hand not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. So David said to Saul, Who am I and what is my life or my father's family in Israel that I should be son-in-law to the king? But it happened at the time when Merab, Saul's daughter, should be having given to David, that she was given to Adriel, the... Mahathalite as a wife. Now, Michal, Saul's daughter, loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him, so Saul said, I will give her to him, that she may be a snare to him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore, Saul said to David a second time, You shall be my son-in-law today. And Saul commanded his servants, Communicate with David secretly, and say, Look, the king is delighting you, and all his servants love you. Now, therefore, become the king's son-in-law. The king wants him talked into this. This is the same father-in-law who tried to kill you. How many people have father-in-laws who uh, maybe you don't get along with all that well? I bet none of them have tried to kill you. So Saul, Saul's servants spoke these words in the hearing of David. And David said, Does it seem to you a light thing to be a king's son-in-law, seeing I am a poor and lightly esteemed man? And the servants of Saul told him, saying, In this manner David spoke. Then Saul said, Thus you shall say to David, The king does not desire any dowry, but 104 skins of the Philistines to take vengeance on the king's enemies. But Saul sought or thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. So when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to become the king's son-in-law. Now the days had not expired. Therefore David arose and went, he and his men, and killed 200 men of the Philistines. He needed 100, he got 200. And David brought their foreskins and gave them in full count to the king that he might become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul gave him, Michal, his daughter, as a wife. Now, the whole thing here is this. Right now, David's a single guy. Single guys don't have a care in the world. He's just single. He's away from his family. If he goes out in the battle, he can be brave. But once you get married, start going in the, that direction, your wife is what she's saying when she, when she sends you off to war. Be careful. Don't get killed. No, not everybody is Spartans. You know what the Spartans, which is my wives, would say to their husbands? The Spartan wife 
when, uh, when the husband was going off to war, they had a ritual, and the Spartan wife would take the shield and give it to her husband and say this to the, to the husband. Said, come back with your shield or come back on it. <laughs> so, don't you be trying to preserve your life out there. You get your, you get your job done. And don't you worry about me either. If you die, I'll be fine. I'm not going to be boohooing. You get out there and you do it. And so they were valiant warriors. The Spartans of the Greeks, they were, they were tough. You don't want to face them. And, um, this is, this is not how all of them would send them off. So Saul is hoping that she'll get in, in his head and he'll be thinking about her when he's out there on the battlefield and instead of doing something, uh, not caring, he's going to try and preserve his life. And that's one of the ways that you can get killed on the battlefield is trying to preserve your life. I'm not on the battlefield. I don't know that, but I know from people who have been on, that's one of the things you've got to be careful of. You've got to get out there and do the things that are necessary. So anyway, she became his wife, and he said, uh, just go out there and kill some Philistines. He thought maybe if I put him on this assignment, that would uh, work. I don't know why. He's been out there killing Philistines all this time, and they haven't been able to get him yet. But he thought this might help. But it's interesting that the men that are under him, they all say, David, we're going to help you with this. We're going to go out there and help you get them. They have no benefit in this at all. Because David brings to himself people of honor. And even if they are not acting in an honorable way, David is bringing that honor out of them. So they jump on in here. They say, we want to help you with this. And so they help them. Now, Saul conspires on this, even to the point of using his own daughters. Can you imagine that as a father? I mean, we like to buy those shirts that, uh, you know, you, you wear as a father. I have uh, seen one for, for grandfathers as well, which probably I'll have to end up getting one. You know, I have a, a granddaughter, a gun, a shovel, and an alibi. <laughs> communicates a message. <laughs> but most people, most fathers, most grandfathers, most are in the, the side of, we're, we're going to protect that little, little girl. And here's Saul actually using the daughter in a plot to get David. How does a person get this, this poisoned in their thoughts? Now, in order for soil to produce bad fruit, we know from the Word of God that that soil has to get poisoned. It has to become bad soil. So how does soil become poisoned or how does soil become bad? I gave you four things here. First thing that will happen is you fertilize evil thoughts of others. When evil thoughts of other people come into your thinking, evil thoughts about your wife, evil thoughts about your kids, evil thoughts about your boss, evil thoughts about your co-workers, evil thoughts about your neighbors, Evil, evil thoughts about other people in church. Evil, evil thoughts about other relatives. Whoever they are. Evil thoughts can come to you if you fertilize them. If you meditate on them. If you tend to them. They begin to grow. That's the first thing you'll do. Is you begin to fertilize. You don't kill them. You fertilize them. Then you begin to get to the next stage. And that's speaking evil of others. You've been thinking evil thoughts. Now you're beginning to speak these evil thoughts. It doesn't end there. Then you get on to wishing evil on others. Boy, I wish they would die. I wish they would lose their job. I wish they'd get fired. I wish, and you say whatever calamity that was there, you're wishing for these bad things to happen to them. You're not doing anything about it. You're just wishing. I just would like to see that go on. And then you get to the, the final one. This is where Saul is. Plotting evil against others. And he was plotting evil against David. Now these would have found no place in the old Saul, but they did find a place in King Saul. King Saul was no longer humble. He became prideful. And these thoughts got inside of him. And we're going to see the progression that goes on. Verse 28, Thus Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him. And Saul was still more afraid of David, so Saul became David's enemy continually. Then the princes of the Philistines went out to war 
And so it was whenever they went out that David behaved more wisely than all the servants of Saul so that his name became highly esteemed. Probably even highly esteemed among the Philistines. The Philistines are out there. Oh no, we got David's men coming after us. Oh no, David's people. These guys are tough. These guys are... Boy, I wish we could fight somebody else. Not David's men. David became highly esteemed among the Philistines and among his own people. Now, people of honor see a big God. This is one thing you will find with people of honor. You will see a big God who can bless all abundantly. If you are a person of honor, if you follow after the ways of honor, you will see a big God and this God can bless all abundantly. But others cannot. People that are of dishonor, they can't see this. People of dishonor take on the limitations of the things they worship. People of dishonor take on the limitations of the things they worship. Whatever it is they worship, they bring those limitations in on themselves. People, get this part down. People of honor do the same thing. People of honor do the same thing. As a person of honor, you take on the limitations of the things or the one that you worship. If I worship God, what limitations am I taking on? The only limitations I take on as a person of honor are the limitations I see on my God. That's it. If I see an unlimited God, then I don't take on any limitations. There are some Christians who see God as limited. But we don't have to be in that, that direction. We can, we can keep on seeing God as having no limits because He has no limits except for those ones that we put on Him. If you see God as a big God, and God is able to bless all abundantly. It doesn't bother you that someone else is getting blessed. Because God's a big God. He's blessing them. He'll bless me. But if you see God as a limited God, if you, whatever it is that we worship, if it's something that is limiting, I only see so much of the pie. And I have to make sure that I get my slice. And in order to get mine, I have to take it away from someone else. That's the, uh, that's the picture that the enemy wants us to have. And this is why people are competing and doing the things that they do. But God is able to bless abundantly above all that we ask or think. Now, here's the thing we're going to get into here next. What happens between a person of honor and a person of dishonor when more conflict arises? How does a person of dishonor combat a person of honor who doesn't play by the same rules? Have you ever had a person of dishonor in your life and they don't play by the same rules you do? They lie, they cheat, they steal. But you're trying to be a person of honor and go in the direction of not lying, not stealing. But it seems like people of honor get beat up by the people of dishonor. Because they're willing to go to to lengths that I'm not willing to go. So how does a person of honor win when we combat a person of dishonor who will do anything. So lie, cheat, steal, bear false witness, tell people things about you that didn't actually happen. How do you battle that? Do you have to get out of being a person of honor and become a person of dishonor and go and battle them for a little while and then come back to being a person of honor? So this is what we're going to take a look at next. We've seen what it is to be a person of honor. We've seen what it is to be a person of dishonor. Now we're going to see when these two forces clash. They, they come against each other because David and Saul come against each other. And don't, don't just get all spiritual on me and say, well, of course the good side wins because it sure doesn't look like David is winning. But we want to take some things from this and see what we can, what we can learn. Would y'all stand up with me? Father God, you have called us to be people of honor. There are many who go by the name of Christians than those who don't go by the name of Christians who are operating 
walking in paths of dishonor. And they have thrown things at us in their dishonor. They've accused us, fought with us, come against us, stolen from us. But you want us to be people of honor. And I thank you that your word teaches us how we can meet what comes against us and remain people of honor and still be victorious. Just as we see that Saul took a path of becoming a person of dishonor. We don't have to follow that path. We can see the signs that are there. We can walk in another direction. I pray for every person in this room. The enemy desires that they walk in the path of dishonor. That they don't hold true to the things of honor. Because they know that in the path of honor, God can bestow great blessings on them. But in the path of dishonor, those blessings can be chased away. Thank you for showing us people in your word who walked dishonorably. We can learn how not to walk. And we can see the signs that show us what not to do. I thank you for it. Give you the praise and the glory for it. We want to walk in all the honor that we can towards you. Even though I walk in all the honor that I know right now, I thank you that you will teach me more about how I can honor you. That I can walk in even greater honor. You are a great God and you are worthy of all the honor that we can bestow on you. I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Glory to God. As we're going on through this series, if you have some questions on things of honor and dishonor, please make sure you get them to me. I'd love to hear where it is that you're at. Sometimes you come up with questions, ask questions I didn't even think of. And uh, I love going out there and, and checking them out, finding out what, to, what the Word of God has to say on it. But always op- operate in a way of honor. Look for the signs in your own life. Have I gone in the way of dishonor? Sometimes we just go in the way of dishonor towards certain people in our life. But it won't be long before we go in the way of dishonor to one or two. Then we start to go to the way of dishonor for three or four. And then five or six. And that number becomes more. You see, Saul started to walk in dishonor towards one person. And that spread to where he was walking in dishonor towards many. It doesn't start with you hating the world. But it will start with you dishonoring someone. And not walking in the honor that we should. Have a great rest of your day. Enjoy the bright sunshine. And whatever it is that you get to do today.